I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Bring on the audacity. Yeah, me too. Record here. Although black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton. And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S. All right. We are back with Hidden in Plain Sight, where we are highlighting the work of Black architects and Black architectural designers in Detroit and in Michigan. And today we have uh, Naomi Beasley Porter, an architectural designer who attended the University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, She got her Master's of Architecture degree from University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, spent some time with in a couple of architecture firms, Hamilton Anderson and Berardi Partners, uh, that has an office in Detroit. And now Naomi has moved on to the city of Detroit Housing and Revitalization Department, where she is a housing development specialist with the city of Detroit in the HRD de- department. What we learn from Naomi and what you will hear is she has a couple of loves in addition to architecture, and she has translated uh, her love for another profession uh, into her uh, work that she's doing now with the city of Detroit. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, she's really shown great range. Like I said, we have interviewed people that we've known and I've just learned so much. I never knew her other interests that you're going to hear about in today's episode, which is, I think, is a vital point for a lot of us architects to get our head around. And um, and she likes the headspace of both of these worlds. So you'll, right. you'll hear that today. And Naomi is another um, NOMA student that we have seen grow in this profession. So when we were starting our NOMA Detroit chapter here in uh, Michigan, one of our strongest chapters, come one of the, one of the two strongest was the um, UAD and our um, U of M uh, NOMAS chapters when we were starting out. And she was a part of the group that uh, she was on the executive board of the NOMAS chapter at the University of Detroit Mercy. And just to see her now coming through the ranks and uh, now being a vital person in the city of Detroit's um, housing programs that are going on throughout the city. Yeah. Just amazing to see the growth. Yes. Naomi spent uh, several years on the board for National Organization of Minority Architects Detroit chapter. Um, she did work quite a bit, too, with the Project Pipeline program, our summer camp for architecture students or students interested in going into architecture. So she's been a mentor there uh, and just a leader in the Black architect community here in Detroit and the architecture community, period. So we are excited to talk with Naomi today and to hear and understand how people use their architecture skills, not necessarily, not always to work in an architecture firm, but take those skills that they learn when getting their architecture degree and working in the firm and translating that into other areas to help people in their communities. Yeah, I've heard so many other people say that like you could take an architecture degree as almost like a general studies to use as a baseline for so many other yeah. careers, right? Um, like I said, working in the planning department at the city, working in the housing department at the city and working in construction, mm-hmm. you know, so many other things you could do with an architecture degree. And like I said, just having that terminology innate language from our program and our study that we do, it helps us in so many different areas to become developers, to become advocates for urban planning, everything. So she has done quite well. And, and, and like I said, the, the, the span of growth that she's had and, uh, and stretching, uh, with what yeah. she's doing with her uh, career now. Right. So let's hear more with Naomi Beasley Porter. We are so happy today to have on this beautiful afternoon, she's already making us laugh, uh, Naomi Beasley Porter. We uh, have been connected with Naomi for 10, 12 years now uh, and have watched her grow through architecture and move on to other architectural adjacent careers and activities. So uh, we are so happy to have you on today, Naomi, and have you tell us your Detroit design story. Thank you for having me, ladies. Yeah. So where do I start? I have a master's degree in architecture. Um, I did the five-year accelerated program that UDM offers. I've also had the privilege of circling back and being adjunct there, currently taking a leave. Uh, a temporary leave just for personal matters. And I'll be circling back, figuring out what exactly it looks like for me in the adjunct space 
at UDM as their curriculum evolves, as my career has evolved, and how that aligns. I'm a native to the city. I'm a Cast Tech graduate. All right. CT. All right. <laughs> number one second to absolutely nobody. And uh, <laughs> we've heard that before. Like every yeah. person that's ever been on here to say they go to Cast Tech, that they say the same thing. Absolutely. <laughs> we are number two to not one person. And, um, <laughs> And so now, um, you know, grateful to have um, had the opportunities that I've had by connecting with members of NOMA throughout my academic and professional career, um, having the support of the many local members and some at the national level and being involved with NOMA at the Detroit and national level for um, certain periods of time. And currently I work at the city of Detroit. I work in multifamily housing development finance. Essentially, I see projects from application intake all the way through closeout. So construction completion, the city provides gap financing for multifamily developments, permanent supportive housing developments, and first-time homebuyer projects. And so I manage the funds that particularly prioritizes those projects. We have a few other resources that I help support in their programs also, but that's the primary focus of my work at the city. That's cool. Wow. I'm over here thinking like, you know, every time somebody talks to me and Karen, we think of another idea, another project, and I shouldn't be doing this, but I hear <laughs> I hear a future panel discussion between architects and developers and, developer. and, finance, mm-hmm. and finance and finance. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that that really sounds cool. That's amazing that uh, you've uh, used things that are like, in, like uh, Karen was saying, architectural adjacent and, and actually learning a part of the development process that to me, we don't get in architecture school, right? Um, so I think that's really cool that you uh, you adapt so well. And right. now I've been in this for over a year, right? Almost two years. I Yeah, I, almost two years. So, you know, everyone kind of hits that. I, a lot of people hit that moment in architecture school where they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so <laughs> when I hit my wall, I was like, I'm going to do accounting. So it aligns with something I've kind of always secretly wanted to do anyway, which is just numbers and finance. So I'm looking at pro formas all day and I'm looking at, so like architecture is this one very small piece to the big puzzle that I manage. So when projects come into um, the the city issues, what they call a NOFA, notice of funding available. Mm -hmm. And so once the project comes into the NOFA, I am reviewing and scoring and qualifying those projects based on their submissions. And if they are awarded, then seeing it through the underwriting process. And then thereafter, once it starts construction, managing the issuing of the funds. So it's full circle on finance from start to finish, but a lot of the projects already come in, they've already engaged their architects. Most of the drawings are at SD or by the time we're working through the underwriting process, they're like, oh, you know, we still have to do VE, so it's not complete yet. So then my construction team can't review it yet. And so that's where like my architectural experience kicks wow. in a little bit, yeah. a little bit much later in the process, but it's still, there's still small moments where it's applicable or just even understanding process yeah. and timeline and being realistic with these projects. And when they have the potential to 
become a reality or for us to finally close on funds for them to start construction. I'm like, well, where are your architectural drawings at? Uh, you know, things like that. So that's where my architectural experience kicks in. Otherwise, it's all numbers and I love it. Wow. That is cool. That is good. Wow. I didn't. So that's that's a new fact. Fun fact today. Well, no, I did not know you were, you were interested in accounting. Right. Did you take accounting in college? So I was like two classes shy of having a certificate in business administration. Oh, so okay. they had the five year accelerated track. And so in the summer months, I would go to Wayne County and I would take elective courses that would double for the certificate and my elective requirements for the architecture program. But going for a master's, you couldn't get a certificate. Mm, so yeah. that's why on my resume, I just listed as a concentration in business administration. Okay. So now that you got your master's, you can go back and get that one, where they let you get that one credit to get the certificate? Wow. Nope, because I didn't get, they didn't offer a bachelor's degree at the time. Uh, mm. okay. okay, okay. That's great. So, so this is something that you wanted to do for a while or at least, you know, transfer those skills to something development or, like you said, accounting related. Absolutely. That's very cool. Very so cool. I, I think I just heard the term today. It's supernova, right? You have a... Uh, the Oh, the NOFA. NOFA. Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, NOFA. The Special Projects NOFA? Yeah, that one. Okay. I just heard about that. Yes. yes, we have oh, the Special Profit okay. Projects oh. NOFA, which is still something that's kind of evolving and we're still trying to, you know, it's ongoing, but it's it's evolving as we kind of try to fine tune that process and that application. Okay. I think it's important for architects to at least try to understand pro formas in Absolutely. some way so they can assist their clients along the way with financing and understanding the financing of the project. Actually budgeting for the project. Because some people Project are like, yes. right? Yes. Because it's like your your design ideas or ideas for amenities for the project. I'm like, that's way above where you need, you know, to be mm -hmm. for the type right. of project you're trying to do right. with the affordable rate you're trying to do. And yeah, it's key that we start to get an understanding of that. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's absolutely imperative, but also like a, a client can tell you everything they want, right? And that's usually the issue in architecture. The client has all of these grandiose ideas and they come to you as the architect and say, I want all of these things. And then you put it in there and then they take it to their GC for pricing. And then the GC is like, oh, here's your number. And it's like, wait a minute, right. I can't. So it's like, it's really difficult to kind of put the cart before the horse in that, in that way, right? Because you just can't, you're not oftentimes being brought to the table together early on enough yes. in the process yeah. for it there to be a balance. So you don't have to go through these extensive mm -hmm. DE exercises when you get to that point and it aligns with the budget that the project budget. And that's just, that's just one observation, just right, being, right, right. <laughs> being in it. And now, especially being on the other side of it and understanding you know, the time implications of that as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think mm -hmm. we as architects, well, we love the the ideas and the creative part of it envisioning. And we get all into that and excited with the owner when they come, you know, and start to talk right. about their project. And we really don't, you know, especially kind of button down and say, okay, you know, what site are you in? What funding sources are you looking at? You know, it's like that. That was like... You know, if it's pretty much like we'll do a background check on you, know you pretty much are a developer. But none of that, let's roll. You know, it's like, 
But we do need to stop and ask the question, you know, about your budget and funding sources, like you said. Yeah, that's helpful. But it, it, I think it absolutely informs the design. Unfortunately, it's kind of like function follows form, right? More so it's like, we need this to be a functional, affordable rate development that meets mm-hmm. these minimum standards because we plan to align with these particular funding sources because everyone has their own criteria as well. Like Mishta has their own, HRD is looking for their own. So, you know, if you know that it's going to be that type of project, it would be, I think it would simplify the the process. But also one thing I've noticed is we have a lot of repeat developers, repeat applicants, and a lot of them, they just turn these projects out. So so they found the formula, some of them, yeah. Some yeah. of them have really found the formula yeah. and they have it now. Um, and it just kind of works. Interesting. Is there anything that you've, now that you're, you've done this for almost two years, that you would give kind of as words of wisdom for architects, especially working with developer type clients? I think we have to pack our patience with any client, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to have a different type of patience when they're, you know, they're reliant upon these other factors and these other things to make the project work. And not mm-hmm. just that they have the financing or the capital already in place to just finish a set of drawings and start the work, right? So th- I think having patience <laughs> that exceeds your your typical range of patience is one thing. And then I, I would just say, have your stuff together, honestly and truthfully. Someone's always looking at your qualifications, right? Always looking at your qualifications, particularly <laughs> minorities that get into development and that are service providers and consultants, right? On these projects, have your stuff together. You have to, you can't do these things haphazardly. You can't approach these scenarios on the basis of we'll just learn as we go, find someone who's done it, find someone Mm -hmm. who's experienced, connect with people who have the experience, learn from them and make it your own. But you Mm -hmm. have to come to the, you have to come to these tables prepared and ready with your patience and your expertise. (laughs) So all packed in a bag. nice. With your patience and your expertise. It is, it is an absolute requirement. So let's, so let's, let's back up just a little bit. One of the things we always try to ask, too, is, especially with you, since you have this accounting-type mind, as well as you have the, the creative side uh, of the mind, what, what's, what got you interested in going to school for architecture? I can't really pinpoint one particular thing, um, but I just, I've always known since I was a little girl, my dad used to always tinker with stuff and work on stuff. And coincidentally, it's kind of like a childhood trauma. Like, I don't want to do house projects anymore. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Renovations give me anxiety. (laughs) So, um, you know, working through those childhood traumas, but on the other side of it, um, it built a foundation for me in having an interest in construction and architecture. Um, My dad was also a calligraphist. And mm. he's the most beautiful mm-hmm. penmanship. And so he had his art room upstairs with his drafting tables and all of his pens. And we used to go to Utrecht back when it was the red building on Woodward <laughs> next right. to Domino's. And so I remember going to Builder Square with him on weekends or going to Utrecht on weekends and getting art supplies or getting stuff to do 
things around the house as a little girl. And like when I would get for rewards or something, if I wanted something, I would get like the floor plan books that they would have at the end caps at yeah. Builder Square. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, the ones with just the prefab manufactured homes. They all yeah. look the same. I used to get but... those too. That's funny. <laughs> actually still have some from like the late 90s man when when i found graph paper i used to try to sketch my own at first my dad used to bring legal pads home and so i used to like try to draw my own floor plans on legal pads mm-hmm. and you know back then you're like oh we want it's like a client with a dream right i used to <laughs> right. want the two staircases and the like your master suite do you want on your first floor and how do you so like i studied those things from like I'd say maybe age seven, maybe say age eight. And so that kind of ultimately piqued my interest. And I was like, okay, I think I want to be an architect. At first I used to say, I want to be a plastic surgeon. I want to make people feel beautiful until I really found out there was too much blood and fluids involved. And I was like, nah, that's not going to work. That's that's, that's how I was with the medical field. I was like, no, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, no, no. and it was just so far-fetched too. And like as a kid, you're like, people perk up when you say, Oh, I want to be a plastic surgeon. They're like, ooh, yeah, nah. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, architecture came along and it just I kind of gravitated towards it. And so when I went to high school, architecture was my curriculum at CAS for the four years. So we had drafting courses, but most of them in the beginning, it was foundationally engineering drawings, like in connection. So we were like doing section elevation plan of mechanical type mm-hmm. drawings and things and it wasn't until we got later on we got access to autocad but even still we were drawing very similar things we did a few projects but they just really scratched the surface when i was taking a, a drafting it was similar like you started out with the mechanical drawings but we had mm-hmm. like one year of architectural drafting did you ever have yeah 11th and 12th grade too. year okay. when they kind of split so anyone they kind of like grouped um, the architecture and the engineering students together, like ninth and 10th grade. And then 11th and 12th is when you had your respective architectural drafting courses. But even still, it was very surface. And so unfortunately, while I had always kind of had this interest, started architecture school, very ill-prepared, <laughs> very behind the curve. You know, and that's that's no fault to anyone in particular, right? And I, And like now... There's so many resources that we have made available that others have made available for students much younger that before mm-hmm. before they get to high school to explore these options and all these things. Um, so I'm very grateful now to be on the other side of having a hand in uh, providing these resources and supporting. Even though I've I've been a little, the pandemic made us all a little inactive in respective places, but overall that these resources do exist to support students who have and show an earlier interest in the profession yeah so so did you go to cas tech with the the mindset okay yeah i can find out i know they have drafting classes i know i can find out a little bit more about architecture or you were just like i just want to go to cas no i didn't want to go to cas what (laughs) no (laughs) now you just said it was the best thing no go ahead it was the best thing it was the best decision in hindsight i'm very grateful that my father made me go but when i took the test i was like my cousin had went to king and he was you know an engineer and he was doing all these great things i was like i want to go to king and so i got into king i went to the orientation i had been in a private school my whole childhood Mm -hmm. so when i went to the orientation at king i was like oh my god i don't have to wear uniforms and the boys are cute 
hey man, I am here. This is it. I had taken my ID photo. And then my dad was like, yep, no, you're going to go to Cass. And I was like, I went there. The building was dirty. We were still in the old building. So I did two years in the old building, two years in the new building. I walked in. I was like, oh, it's dirty. It's old. Mm-mm, I don't want to be here. And so out of 400 applicants that filed for appeal, 10 of us got in and Melvin made me go. Bless his heart. But I was upset with him for a while. <laughs> in hindsight i'm very grateful but mm-hmm. at the time i was like Mm-mm. <laughs> that's funny <laughs> so how did you get from uh, cast tech to ud so ud was melvin at it again with his antics <laughs> my little sister she is 16 years younger than i am and so when it came time to go to college you know, I'm 18. I'm like, yes, I am about to go out of state. I was ready to go to SCAD. I was so excited. And um, my dad was like, well, if you leave, your sister's not going to know who you are oh, when you come goodness. home for holidays. And I was like, oh, my God, my baby's not going to know who I am. <laughs> I come home from college. But you got into SCAD? I did. Oh, wow. wow. Nice. That's nice. where I wanted to go. I was like, I, I want to be there. And um, how many how many schools you apply to totally? I have no idea. The main priority schools were LTU, UDM, and SCAD. I have family down in Georgia and Savannah. Okay. It's beautiful. And I was like, I want to go there. So those are my main three schools. And um, my dad was like, well, if you go to LTU, we're so impressionable at 18. I'm so proud of this generation of kids now. Just let me put that out there. <laughs> but like... <laughs> My dad was, my parents were just like, okay, well, if you go to LTU, they're more of a technical university. So if you don't want to, if you're not sure about architecture, because again, I was toting between architecture and accounting, hmm. you're going to kind of be limited with your options. That's true. It's more colleges at UDM versus, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so his, I mean, my mom was an alumni at UDM. They only gave me a very small scholarship, but it's like, you know, you go to UAD, you can commute. And it'll be cheaper and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right. And it's five years. So they, they, there's also that too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's five-year master degree as opposed to six years, like a four and two. So that's ultimately kind of how I ended up there. But as I recall, when you, when I met you, when I remember meeting you at first, uh, you were a standout student at uh, U of D School of Art, or you were, you were a leader. Yep. I was a leadership. leader. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. I remember there was a panel of women in architecture and you kind of led that panel, if I recall correctly. I remember participating mm-hmm. and I had no idea. I think really you spoke who. more than anybody else. <laughs> I, I think they like to call on the student more so. And also I was kind of the only black person up there, which I don't like to like yeah. say is always yeah. a thing. But sometimes it they happens. make it they make it very <laughs> obvious that you are the only black person right. up there. Um and I, that was with AIA Detroit. And right. I was active with AIAS. So I was very active with AIS mm-hmm. and active with uh, the resurgence of our NOMAS chapter at that time. Because um, it had kind of went desolate for a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so I knew AIA from the student perspective. I was completely ignorant to AIA at the professional level. And then, you know, locally and nationally. Because I was just like, okay, these are great engage. This is a great opportunity to engage with our my peers, my student peers, right? 
I've always looked at it from that lens more than just like, okay, at some point you got to transition this, do this professional transition or always be working up to that. And so that was kind of one thing that I guess I was, I went into blindly as a student kind of, or just thank God it just kind of naturally happened for me at a certain point. I think it was catapulted by Noma or Nomas, Noma D, whichever one. But yeah, that was, I was like, oh, this is cool. And they have Barbie doll. Even though it wasn't, they only had one Barbie doll. It was just. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, it was like that. We, we've we been saying that and discovering that in a lot of interviews we, we've done that people don't, you know, we know where we want to be, but we don't know how to navigate and all of the pathways you should take and which organizations are which. And we learn that along the way. And it's, it's kind of. I wish you know, like wish we would have had exposure some kind of way, like you said, to younger kids that like we're giving with normal pipeline and different things. But since we didn't have that, we go in and we're like, like when I went to uh, Lawrence Tech, Marcel Todd was the president of AIAS mm-hmm. at Lawrence Tech. Yeah. So I was just like, okay, yeah, Marcel's president. I'm going to join this organization. How much of the dudes, you know, like, yeah, okay. But yeah, we didn't have a Noma chapter, you know, Noma's chapter at, at uh, LTU when I was there and didn't know anything about Noma. So it's just like, that would have just been great to know in college, you know, it's like, yeah. But also I think, so my experience was unique in that I can't speak for other Black students that went to UDM, but I can speak for me in saying being Black from the city that the school was in amongst all of these white peers, to a certain extent, it was always a matter of not even necessarily proving myself as like a decent student, but also like proving myself as like a black person that was worthy to be there. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I was always challenged by my peers. Um, I felt that way at U of M. Not just even in the ability to perform or be good in architecture design is not for everyone. And of course it didn't go without its struggles, but I would submit one, it's difficult to find a mentor in a predominantly white space mm-hmm. as a black student. Yep. I think it's a little bit easier now, but it's a little bit more cool, right? Like right. people are reaching right. out to you. Like mm-hmm. they they see you more now, but I think it's because society has made it where, where they have to be intentionally looking for us. Um, it's, and it's crazy, right? Cause I'm talking about 2007, 2008. Not that long This isn't ago, even yeah. 20 years ago. Right, right, right. And so I was always being challenged by my white peers like beyond just like the isolated racial incidents, right? Of like someone petting my hair with a golf club or like what? people. Oh yeah. I isolated that with a golf club, not just touching your, your hair. My hair, I had my hair in an afro and my back was turned. And I won't say the gentleman's name, but he thought that I would not feel it because mm. my hair was, he said that my hair was so nappy and he took a golf club and he proceeded to try to start petting my hair. Oh my goodness. And if we did not have a nun as a teacher that day, I probably would have got expelled. So I almost cut him with an exacto. Um, mm, wow. And, but see, it was those types of tests as well. But then you also have to understand, like, I, me coming from the city too, they had never engaged with urban ki- like people from the urban area. In the, in the middle of the city, but had not yeah. engaged, engaged with. Like, there were kids that had never even heard of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I remember one kid saying, I don't know who that nigger is, but I'm glad he gave oh us a day goodness. off. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Had <laughs> UDM. So, um, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and albeit, I love my alum, my my alma yeah. mater. 
I teach mm-hmm. there, right? But like those were those types of isolated events that just kind of always made me feel like I just had to prove that, like, you know, just having to always prove ourselves just mm-hmm. as being human. I've been having right. a lot of conversations the last year, you know, especially stepping into the role of director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And just to make people realize, like, not only white people, but black people can go through pretty much, they can go through elementary, junior high, and possibly high school without ever going to school with a white person, if you're black. And then when you get into college, it's probably the first time you're going to get exposure to someone outside of your race. It's like we live in these parallel worlds because our society, our the United States is segregated by design, right? That mm-hmm. we have our own neighborhoods, our schools are in our neighborhood. And then when you venture mm-hmm. outside your neighborhood to go to college and you talk about out of state, that's the first time all of that happens. And then you start to be with someone that you are literally now with somebody of another race every day, possibly staying in the dorm with all of this. But before then, there were no interactions, no um, how do we work together? How do you, you know, it's, they're still learning like, oh, can, you know, just right. silly but stuff. But then even just, outside of class, you have your own groups, organizations, mm-hmm. and then sit at the lunch table, yep. the dinner table, you know, it's segregated. So, yeah. And, and, but you know, what's even interesting on the other side of that, when you're an inner city kid going to inner city schools, nine times out of 10, your teachers are also white. And so mm-hmm. when you go into the mm-hmm. college space and your professors are white and you might have one or two black professors, right? And it's like, oh my God, there's a black person there. Right. But sometimes they come off the same way as their your white teachers, right? Because like they've worked so hard or they've done whatever they need to do to get in that space. That They're it's doing like, like you're doing as a student. They're trying to prove themselves as well in that teaching space. Yeah. So you can't be your authentic Black self. You don't want to make it look like it's favoritism, right? Because, oh, there's mm-hmm. only one or two Black kids in my class. So it's really difficult to make those connections as well, even in the collegiate space as a Black student. That's why mentorship is so important. And it's kind of like this gatekeeper's mentality. and even it even translates into practice. Yes. I have definitely into practice and, and I've, I've seen it be more generational, mm, whereas okay. like more senior people in practice that are black or non-white, they'll only help you get so far if they mm. think that you're worthy enough. Like right. who gave you the permission to say that mm. I am or am not worthy enough? Yeah. And how did you get where you were? It wasn't you doing it by yourself. Someone paved the way and someone helped you. And so you think you do one or two small things for someone. And then there's an entitlement to your career or there's an entitlement to you. But also that like, oh, well, I got here on my own. Now you can do the same. And it's like, why is it necessary for us to continue to like perpetuate this cycle of struggle throughout our academic and professional careers. Yeah, it's it's like when everybody talks about diversity in the profession, I'm like, are we really ready for diversity? Because there's so much hierarchy built into the profession. It's so much, I almost want to say like kingdom kind of tier mm-hmm. of things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like- There's still the old boy network. There's still the old boy network. You know, we're sitting here, three women talking, but 
is less than 25% women in the profession still, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So yes, they're still uh, the good old boy club. So it's, it's a- after being in those spaces, it's tough to put yourself back in those spaces. So like one of, one of the questions that, you know, we like to ask too is like, the, you know, what type of, you know, did you work for black architects coming out of school? Did you, you know, it's like, cause it's hard sometimes you don't want to go to the majority firm after, after coming through school and, and filling all that, you're like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm thinking I'm going to find a black architect. And then you, you try to fill that role as a, I need a mentor, right? I need a role mm-hmm. model and I need to feel safe. Yeah, I have, I have had the privilege of working with black architects uh, multiple uh, throughout my architectural career. Good, bad, and indifferent. Again, it's generational. I think it's experiential. And then also... I think it just, it depends on that person. Mm-hmm. I've worked with two Black architects in particular that were day and night experiences with them being my my leader, my director, or supervising me and what mentorship looked like. Mm-hmm. But again, I think experience, beyond just like professional experience, their experiences in their career, throughout the tenure of their career, um, I think those things have really played a hand in the different experiences that I had. And it, it's, it's going to sound really crazy to say, but overall, I would say being in the space that I'm in now, I am much more respected and more likely to be heard from white mm. people than I am from black people. Yes, there are going to be people that are always going to challenge you in certain spaces, right? You're a young black woman and you haven't done anything long. Like I haven't okay, I practiced maybe seven, eight years. Okay, I've been considered the assistant before or whatever, the draft a girl or whatever. But also architecture, from going from college to profession, they don't do a good job of preparing you to work in the practice, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. architecture school is completely different than working in an architecture firm. It is day and night and Firms do a really poor job of properly equipping and preparing young professionals to be successful in their first architectural jobs. And I would submit that it's really difficult and like it it can be done, but you have to have people that are willing on both ends, the student and the teacher. But it's a little more difficult if you if you're you're trying and you're met with these roadblocks and then you're just you just kind of give up. And it's just like, I have this job that I just have to do. You lose your passion for it. I did. Um, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that have because of their first experiences in the profession. You get really jaded really quickly. But um, yeah, I have found that it's my opinion is much more valued when it's not with black people. <laughs> um, and it's not as it's not as challenged. Um, but also, there are not a lot of black people in the space that I occupy currently either. Yeah, it's not a lot. Not a lot of black people in the AEC industry, construction, real estate, you know, Period. all of those right. spaces. And it shows, right? You know, it's like when we look at our neighborhoods, we look at the needs that are in our neighborhoods. You can tell there's nobody there. And it's like, oh yeah, this is needed over here um, because the voice is not there. Right? All right, today for our Detroit City of Design Spotlight, we're going to talk about all the great affordable housing that is happening throughout the city of Detroit. Karen is going to be able to share a lot of things that she's doing in the developer world 
Um, but there are some key projects that are out there that are happening across um, the city of Detroit and the strategic neighborhoods that are uh, throughout the city, um, as well as Midtown, downtown area. And uh, one of the projects that I'm working on at Quinn Evans is called the Ose Art Apartments. And it's a, it's a great, great project with uh, two African-American developers, George Namdi, which is also a gallery owner here in the city of Detroit over 20 years as a gallery owner, um, has now rolled out these branded housing developments. So this Osei department is named after the Osei artist that his artwork is on the exterior of the building. So his branding is each of the apartment buildings and developments he's going to work on are going to be branded after an African-American artist, which is amazing, right? And these apartments are actually works of art themselves, right? Yeah, right, right. Uh, the design of it is really cool. Uh, you can catch that in the show notes, though. The, the building is wrapped in the artwork. Yes. Uh, and the nature of the artwork in itself actually kind of unveils that wrapping even more. So it's, it's that folding is also in that you see in the architecture is also in that artist's body of work. And um, his co-developer is Rod Hardeman, who has actually become a pioneer here in uh, the city of Detroit and development with his new program he started with uh, Invest Detroit. Yeah, the EBR fund. Yes, it's a fund to help out up and coming developers with funding and kind of soft cost and operating cost things that they need as a developer to get started. So some major things happening here in the city. Uh, and the two of them co-developing in the Woodbridge area, 30-unit apartment building going up on Grand River. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go on a bus tour with the Real Estate Association of Developers, or REED, which is an association for um, black and brown developers in the city. And we got to see the OSE development, OSE apartments under construction. And along with that, we got to see uh, four other affordable housing developments that are being done by Black real estate developers. So one was the Freelon, which is named after African-American architect Phil Freelon, who had done so many museum projects across the country, including the National African-American Museum at the Smithsonian. But uh, he passed away recently, but he was uh, part of the project in the Sugar Hill area in Detroit. Uh, but the Freeline is developed by Sonia Mays and her Develop Detroit organization and POHA. So these Freeline apartments uh, have several units designated for veterans. It's right across yes. the street from the VA hospital, and it includes many universal design and accessibility features for veterans. And it was it was cool on that project too, how they um, allowed uh, AIA Detroit and the uh, Interior Design Association to actually both come into that project and actually decorate out those veterans units yeah. and teams and, and, and um, designer teams and um, had a contest for that as well. So those each of those veteran units got a uh, custom design and, and interior fit out for the veterans coming in. And AID Trade was involved in that. It was a lot of PR yeah. around that. But that was a great effort. And um, Great design there. Yeah. yeah I was going to say an architect, like you said, was uh, Phil Freeline was on the team with mm-hmm. uh, Perkins and Will. And Macintosh and Porsche was the other architect okay. on, um, on the uh, Freeline building. So, yeah, it's just uh, a lot of stuff happening here. Yeah. 
Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. <laughs> We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. The third um, project that we saw on that tour was a scattered site development by Tecton Development, where Jason Jones is the principal of that development company. So also it was in the North Corktown area of Detroit. So near where the old Tiger Stadium is, uh, just north of there. Uh, and he showed us two units, four units, I'm sorry, in two separate buildings then he's going to have several others in the area. So that was a great project to take a look at. And then the last one that was part of that tour was the West Woodward development at Woodward and Martin Luther King mm -hmm. in Detroit, uh, a larger development uh, by Chris Jackson and James Jenkins. So Sandra knows a little bit more about that project. All, a beautiful, beautifully designed project. Uh, it is in an area where there are a lot of students who can live there, uh, residents who are working at the hospitals nearby, um, but just a beautiful project with lots of amenities for the, the residents. Yeah, it's like all these new housing developments that are often in the city, a lot of flexibility to do, do different things. So the West Woodward project is right across the street from another uh, project that is was done before the pandemic here in Detroit, uh, the Scott and mm -hmm. it, during the pandemic, that, that Scott was like the go to spot to help out um, the College Creative Studies for their student housing shortage that they had because they were actually delayed with supply chain issues in their student housing renovation project. So students were super excited to be able to stay in this new luxury apartment. And then that's the same thing um, that it will be, be able to happen with West Woodward. You know, it's like a lot of we have two urban colleges that are right in downtown Detroit and CCS and Wayne State students are always looking for uh, housing units and places to go. We have the medical center there. They're always looking for housing units and places to go. And then, but to keep that affordability piece to that, each of these developments have been key, right? That people who are from Detroit still can stay in Detroit along with these other new students and, and residents who are coming to the area, but the existing residents in the area can stay as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then um, Hamilton Anderson, was the architect on that project. 
And I think uh, the platform, too, was also partner developer with Chris Jackson and James Jenkins on that project. Right. And it's just exciting to hear all that. Like you said, that you saw on that tour, I wish I could have caught that. Because uh, I remember when Jason was just getting started, we were both small business owners at Tech Town. He did his first multi, I think it was like a threeplex or fourplex that he did in Woodbridge neighborhood. Uh, and, you mm-hmm. know, see him get right. see him get that built. And then now he's doing other sites as well. It's just exciting to see, uh, especially the African-American developers that have been really making their stride in the city. So it's been really good to see. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out to the women developers like Sonia Mays and yes. our new Women's Sustainable Development Initiative, which I am a founding board member. So happy to um, Karen. start <laughs> start this uh, new organization to help women, especially black women and women of color, to get their development projects up and running and get the shovels in the ground and get them built. We know how difficult sometimes or many times it is for women and women of color to get the funding they need to get their projects going. And WSDI is looking to help them get the access to the networks that they need and the funding that they need to get their projects built. So I've I've been very fortunate just to catch a couple of uh, uh, seminars and open discussions that your organization has put on. How does does someone get in contact with your organization? Go to womendevelop.org and you can sign up to be a member and you can get information uh, and be put on our mailing list. Uh, you can also go to our Facebook group, WSDI uh, Women Develop, and just say you want to be a member and we'll check you out. We have uh, to make sure uh, that everybody's legit when you go on Facebook, but uh, we welcome you to come and join us if you're interested in being a developer. And not just in Detroit, we're, we want to be nationwide. So. Okay. Yes. Right, good to know. Like, hopefully we flood the airwaves now with this <laughs> and everybody says... <laughs> Yeah. So the other point that really connects with our guest today uh, is the the big initiative that came out with the city of Detroit this year, the affordable housing uh, for Detroiters uh, seven point plan that they rolled out. It is a two hundred and three million dollar plan that was rolled out by the city of Detroit Housing and Revitalization Department. Uh, Mayor Duggan, um, there were key council members that supported this as well. Uh, Mary Waters and Lachisha Johnson and Angela Calloway all helped develop this plan. And if we haven't mentioned Donald Rencher yet, the director of Detroit HRD, uh, Donald Rencher is the director there. Yes, yes. It's been helping some of these projects that we've been talking about, um, as well as some other areas that uh, we haven't touched on. So there's uh, they're, they're looking at basically a housing commission apartment rehab. So they have $20 million of funds for that. So there are several nice, very historical apartment buildings within the city of Detroit that are um, actually getting renovated into and brought back online for affordable housing. Um, Really nicely done, uh, some of the ones that we've seen. There's also programs with our Detroit Land Bank to help get some of those scattered sites back on online that that the Land Bank owns Mm -hmm. and see if you can put together like 10 unit developments, 20 unit developments on a certain amount of sites. So it's just a lot of exciting things with this plan. Yeah. And they're looking to, you know, expedite the approval process for a lot of these um, housing projects uh, and to get the developers 
you know, moving more quickly and to get the process more streamlined with the city. So there are a lot of things, again, that the city of Detroit is uh, working on to make these projects move quicker and to get people into affordable housing a lot faster, because we know that is a huge need right now uh, yes. for affordable yes. housing um, in our cities and in our suburbs and across the country. Yeah, we need everything we can to uh, make these capital stacks work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in initiatives like this with the ARPA funds coming online and helping to uh, be another mechanism that they can maybe use with low-income housing tax credits that, um, you know, help developers really push these projects forward. So we're so excited of everything that is happening in Detroit. And a lot of these projects, like I said, really cool designs that you should definitely check out on the City of Detroit's Housing Re mm -hmm. Revitalization website. Uh, we'll put some links in the show notes. And there's a lot of nice housing that are that is being built in Corktown area, which is one of our new innovation center areas that have come along. So some of those are uh, not just for the innovation and tech industry. It's, it's affordable housing right. as well. So there's a component to have affordable units in each development that is happening throughout the city. Um, so there's really really cool that you know a lot of new things are happening but people are not getting left out so i'm excited right about it. right and you'll hear more about the developments across the city when we talked with antoine bryant who is the director of planning for the city of detroit and that'll be coming up next season yeah, we'll do a teaser yeah, for a, next season already already <laughs> so yes yeah, there is a second season coming there you go <laughs> all right so back with naomi beasley porter So well, Naomi, when you were at U of D, did you have internships, you know, in the summers or, you know, while you were in school? Yes, I would say that my internships, I did non-traditional internships. Um, so they were mostly with nonprofits that were doing work in the city. Mm. When I was in college, you know, it was like 2007 to 2012. So the economy had just kind of took a turn and firms weren't hiring. And then also, again, just not feeling qualified because you don't feel equipped, mm. right? Starting architecture school, feeling behind the curve, mm -hmm. not really understanding, not really knowing where to go to get the experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a lot of nonprofit related co-ops okay. in the city. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my first firm job until I was two years out of college. Okay. Do you think... The school could have helped you a little if that's what you wanted. If you wanted to get a job in a firm, do you think the school could have helped you more in that area? Or um, I think there's multiple factors. Just one, not knowing where to go mm -hmm. resource wise you know, in a, a school where you the mm -hmm. network, right? Yeah, the network right. wasn't there. So not having those connections. My uncle doesn't know an architect or my dad's not a contractor. We don't know. I don't know who right. to communicate right. with. Um, I'm not a I'm not a teacher's favorite. I don't have a mentor. Um, my biggest resource that I had was the wonderful woman. She does not work at UDM anymore. Her name was Carmen Gramlin, and she was like the co-op coordinator, mm -hmm. or like she helped people get their internships. God bless her wherever she is. But she was amazing, and she was a black woman, and she was the only person that really took the time and the patience to like. Say, okay, this is what you need. This is what you're mm -hmm. looking for. I'm like, yeah, we have the classes, but it's still like, well, I don't have the experience. So I don't know what exactly 
what yeah. this is supposed to look yeah. like. Hey, or the nerve to uh, apply for a job when you don't have experience. Because other people right. do, right? They just have more, more nerve, more gumption. And, and, oh, you know. man, I would send my resume everywhere. <laughs> and But that was the other thing, too, right? I've, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people. It's just like, overall, trend-wise, you see a difference in the portfolios and the work of Black students mm. as a poll and in the quality and the deliverable and the process and their thought and design mm-hmm. thought process. There's a different quality of work. And then overall, the final aesthetic between Black students and white students. I think there's been a lot of filling in that gap in the last few years, but I've had this conversation with black and white professionals, Mm -hmm. especially being in the academic space that you do see a difference in the quality of the work. And so to that, I'd be remiss to say like, I was getting by, I was like, you know what? Cool. I'm going to take this B. I'm going to take this B minus. We're going to be all right. Um, (laughs) So, you know, but also just, not having again those foundations or that background yeah. or that support or that network to I think really be as successful as you can be. So that um, reminds me, you know, we've talked about uh, doing portfolio reviews with Noma. And uh that's something that we should revisit. Yeah. I, I was gonna ask you about like Noma, what can Noma do differently? Because I know like when when I met you like you said, there was the reboot of the Nomas chapter at mm-hmm. UD. And I was incoming president of Noma Detroit. You were. Yep. And <laughs> yep. And then we that 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 as soon as the chapter got set back up, uh, we worked with the university and um what's her name? Don, Don Danielle. Donzetta Jones. Donzetta. Yeah, Donnie Donzetta, Jones. Donald, Donald, Donnie Jones. She and, ran that place. Yeah, she did. Yes, she did. And uh, we were uh, raising funds to get you to come to a NOMA conference. So we financed, I think it was four of you that went um, Mm -hmm. to the conference. And you were, I know I had not seen a conference when I was at college level to be able to go and actually see a room full of minority people is kind of a, a big deal. But like I said, then you were trying to keep the chapter started, transition the chapter and everything. But what what were some things that you were missing in that in that senior year that could have you know helped you? I think I think what you said right, just the those additional resources to support the student as a student. Noma has always focused on networking, yeah. um, right? And so I know like we've had instances where we did you know thesis reviews for the students, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we help the students be successful in their student work and not just Let's get you a network so you can get you a job, right? What does that look like? Is there a scholarship that we can provide? I think also, and I can only speak for our chapter. I don't know what other chapters are doing, but it's important for our student chapters to see us unified again so that they can take us seriously. Mm -hmm. I think that is a big thing because when I was a student, I didn't know all of the nuances then, right? About at the chapter level, at the professional level, but you guys at least appeared as one unit. Um, and so I think it's not necessarily a rebrand, but just kind of like, this is who we are. These are our priorities. Take standing firm in it. I think our NOMA chapter has gotten so bogged down by trying to do so many things, right? For local and national to mm-hmm. appease yeah. all of these other things. And so we just need to circle back and prioritize who we are, what our priorities are, 
we've had conversations with students. They've told us time and time again what they need. After a while, you get tired of repeating yourself. Mm -hmm. So how can we help our students thrive as students, better prepare them as best as we can to transition? We understand that the network is going to be there, right? But also, I would say a bigger part of that is how do we make ourselves less intimidating as professionals? And Mm -hmm. I think that's just kind of something that's always going to be a thing. Students are... I don't know, these kids now are way more emboldened than we ever were. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> overall, how do we just not be intimidating? Like, what, is, what does that look like? And not to say we bring ourselves down to our level, but some of us are so, once we get to a certain point in our professional careers, mm-hmm. um, we're so displaced that we're not relatable or we're yeah. not approachable. I agree with you there, Naomi. When I went, uh, when I was in architecture school, there was a NOMA conference here in Detroit. And University of Michigan sent some of us here. But I didn't really, you know, interact a whole lot with the professionals who were here, maybe more so with students. And I think they could have been more relatable. Like Absolutely. So, like, when the first time we went to conference, like, oh, my God, there's this huge room of Black architects. I don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. If I find someone that's from Detroit, I'm going to say hi, but everyone's so busy in their own things, right? Yeah. right. I I don't think conference is the first space. I think that there needs to be more intimate spaces between the chapters, the professional chapters and the student chapters that allow us to really formulate relationships so that when you get to a place like conference, which is, it's already intimidating being in a room with a whole bunch of professionals, people on their own firms. This person is doing their own thing over here. This person's been practicing forever, whatever the case may be it's already intimidating sometimes in those spaces, but then it just be like, Oh yeah, well we sponsor students to go to conference. And then we send them to conference and like, Oh, they're going to compete. Okay. But we just kind of left them to their own devices. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we, and they're so working on the competition and we haven't taught them about, you know, networking skills, you know, networking is a skill. You don't just walk in a room and start talking to someone. You got to know who's in the room and Absolutely. know the conversations to have. Absolutely. I have to commend you for your work that you've done with coming back to UDM and working directly with the students on their competition submission for mm-hmm. NOMA. And that that role that NOMA Detroit and UAD have together in giving even professionals who have been interested in teaching opportunity to go to a university and teach and let students be able to see a person of color on campus. Mm-hmm. But it also supports these students as they prepare to go to the NOMA conference and you and you really have time to spend with them to say, here's how you present your project. Here's not only how you design it. Yeah. Uh, and then this is how the setup for the day is and prep them versus they just come to the conference with their boards and just like, I'm going to go for it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I will say that was, that was the inaugural studio for that. And that was like the biggest learning curve ever. So like, <laughs> I think, and it's it's really difficult to find that balance, right? And also in the midst of that mid-semester, COVID happened. So we had to transition from being in person to being online. And so there are tons of successes that could have come from that studio. And there are tons of things that we could have done differently, right? But we were, it was a last minute effort, which we're very grateful for because of, again, it allows professionals the opportunity to practice in that space mm-hmm. where we otherwise would not have been afforded that opportunity, right? But at the same time, I don't want that to be our only gateway in, right? right. So what do we do 
to prevent that from being our only gateway? How do we also qualify our professional members to go back and do these things? But also being a university, how do we broaden our lens and our scope to be open to other professionals <laughs> um, as well? So it's 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 both it's both and type of situation, but um, it is an opportunity that I hope that UDM can circle back to. I know that it's a priority of the leadership there, but then also just, you know, being better about um, diversifying the student body, the professional, the, the professional body there as well. And then the reality is though, um, I will say from a professional standpoint, it's difficult to work a regular job and teach. (laughs) And so that part is not as appealing to yes. sell to <laughs> professionals to say, hey, do you want to teach this design studio? You know, we're going to pay you this much, but it's going to take 15 to 20 hours out of your week. And so it's just like, you know. design studio is much different than teaching a, a math class where every answer, you have one answer for right. every question. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so even beyond the studio aspect, like, I worked with the university. I I, I was working alongside Dorian Moore mm-hmm. and we were running the co-op program. So kind of restructuring that curriculum for there, but also trying to work certain things into the curriculum as well that kind of puts the students more at a level playing field, right? Like what are what are these check, what are these benchmarks and these checkpoints throughout the curriculum from first to fifth year right. that ensures mentorship? Ensures the students are always revising their work, right? You're not just working on a studio project and you got to go to your next semester or your next school year. Like, what does portfolio evolution look like? What does resume evolution look like? How are we helping and supporting all students to best qualify for jobs when it comes time to have a co-op? How are we equipping them? What does that look like? So my scope of being an adjunct went beyond just teaching in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I was working directly with the leadership at the university and was grateful that they were open-minded to those things, right? Because we still hear a lot of stories about um, universities that are giving their NOMA students a hard time or, you know, Mm -hmm. there are challenges that they're trying to overcome in their respective schools of architecture that, um, or colleges of architecture that they just, they don't have the leadership support there for. Yeah. I mean, some schools are still trying to validate why do we need a NOMAS chapter versus AIAS. And it's like, it's not really the debate. Any way you can help a student, you should let the student, sure. uh, you know, Absolutely. go to the affinity group of their choice and not try to force down anybody's way, one way or the other, right? What's the matter with the option of choice? Right. And and a lot of things that you mentioned, like I, I almost hear another round table. This could be a NOMA round table or town hall at universities. But like as a small business owner, I learned about the co-op program at University of Turk Mercy, not for someone in architecture school. Um, it was I'm at a business event and this guy's like, yeah, you looking for an intern? You know, we have an internship program where we help small businesses. We pay half their salary. You pay half. So as a small business owner, I'm like, oh, bad. Really? OK. Uh, yes, I'm interested. Where's, can I have your card? Here's my card. And yes, I did follow up and call. And that's ended, that's how I ended up getting Stephen Lentini working in my office. He basically went through the co-op program, applied to get this intern. I was like, do you have any architectural interns? But if we, like I said, if you're going through the process of revamping that program, 
then, you know, can we set it up that there's a certain number of normal students that come into the program? Then it helps small businesses mm-hmm. and firm owners. And the firm owners know that they can get, you know, get help. And it's, there's financing there to pay half a salary. They're going to definitely bring somebody in. They, right. they know they probably couldn't afford a full salary before, but this is going to help them, you know, make the match. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a number of conversations that need to happen. Yeah. And I think one of the things that have fallen by the wayside from the NOMA that I joined is just continuing to support the voice of the marginalized. I think we've gotten so wrapped up in all these deliverables and all these other things that the real voice, the safe space of NOMA, right? We've kind of lost that in the process of our growth or reprioritization. Um, I know like national, of course, there's, you know, the national platform is much different, but how are we impacting our membership locally mm-hmm. and empowering them? And that's something that I think we always need, right? Like the point of joining these organizations is not just to have a network. For some, yes, but a lot of people that I've spoken to join NOMA for those reasons, right? In addition to um, camaraderie, having mm-hmm. this, having this space where you can let your hair down, where you can be yourself, where you can... Um, you can communicate about your challenges and then the organization saying, okay, we're seeing this trend in this challenge. How do we address it? How do we support our membership so that they can be as successful as they can be? And so I think that's also something that we've kind of lost over the years with our local chapter. I mean, NOMA's evolved a lot. Um, if you look at it as an organization, I mean, it was really started by all business owners, right? That, you know, if we look at the founders of NOMA, they were all small firm owners. They were about how to make, how, how do I get a project, right? And then right. in that vein, as they grew their practices together, almost coming together as this conglomerate to help, um, basically help with teaming across the country, something they were never able to do before because now they knew another minority firm in that comp- in that city, and then they were able to grow, right, as an organization. Then it became that safe space. Like after it was some success and then, the, you know, you had a couple of conferences under you, the organization was starting to stabilize. And then it's like another growth happens. And then what happens? And I think that's where we're at now, right? You have this other big growth that's happening with NOMA. And it's like, okay, what is it? You know, what what, what kind of What's space? Gonna right. What kind of space? Now? Right. What is it going to involve into now? Did it? It's getting it's getting bigger. It's getting you know more attention, and yeah, it's just it's it's really thoughtful navigation of 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 growth, right? It's uh it's definitely a lot to think of. It was a lot to happen uh, uh, during the dual pandemics, as we call it, right? You got the you know you know the pandemic with the COVID nineteen, but there was the the racial pandemic that really pushed Noma to a different level. That I think that we're still putting our heads around, right? There's a lot to take in. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. And I think we can still ch- carry the charge of national at the local level and still meet the needs of our local membership yes. that yes. we yeah. ask to pay due. So I think it can still be a both and thing. Yeah. And it, it just seems that that's kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. I think too, like our local chapters during the pandemic, you know, they had no conference to network between and talk to people. You know, we lost contact with each other as chapters, right? And now we're coming back together for our first in-person conference and, you know, and since 2019. Um, but other than that, everybody's kind of siloed out there, like trying to figure out 
you know, what to do. You're not able to, besides social media, see some things, but that's not the same thing as talking with somebody. Like, no, it's not. It's right. Like, so it's like face to face. Yeah, it's like we 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 miss something during the pandemic as well. It's that like that that the chapters have to get mended from. So. It, yeah, it's a lot to to, to take in. It is a I lot think to take in. everybody just got so used to being on Zoom, and now we're able to get back together, but we're we're slow to do that, right? Because we're so used to meeting online. So you know, local chapter is working towards that. We just need to get on a regular schedule. Yes, that. yes. The effects of the pandemic is. I think it's making ripples all the way across. Like even our student chapters, I think the needs that you kind of talking about, is, I think it's even worse now um, because of the gap in the, the pandemic and people mm-hmm. being able to go back to campuses and, uh, you know, them upset. Uh, you know, some some students weren't, weren't, chapters weren't even still traveling for this year's conference. The university hadn't given them permission for like the out-of-state travel yet. So mm. it is a lot of factors that, we uh, we definitely have to think about on the other other side of this to figure out how to get back to some of the things that we had, right? Uh, or improve some of the things we had since we uh, we learned, right? Yeah, I would submit though that a lot of the challenges that we face locally in the Detroit area were just exacerbated by the the pandemic. I don't think that a lot of these things were birthed out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just kind of made it a bit worse so and i think there are all things that can of course be rectified and like i said just coming back together just to say hey this is who we are this is what we do and moving forward with that like i think we just need common goals just to move forward understanding what our foundations are um that are set from national yeah definitely can we talk a little bit about projects you worked on little bit of your professional experience in architecture versus the uh, the work you're doing now with the city? So in my first firm, they worked on a lot of larger projects. And so there were some that they were great projects to work on, right? They're great things to list on your por- in your portfolio and on your resume. <laughs> but I would say, I would submit for me personally that they weren't fulfilling projects. And so these larger entertainment, larger residential projects, they're cool, right? The outcome is cool. Like, oh, you worked on that? Yeah, I I designed that corner right there. I, you know, they gave me that one little piece. Um, I figured that out, but who did it help? What was the impact of it? Like a, a, a true positive impact and not just something for temporary entertainment or just market rate housing or whatever that looks like. And so in my second firm experience, we were smaller in scale and we worked on smaller projects, but we were working with Detroiters, small business owners, entrepreneurs that were in the Detroit communities, equipping them with the resources for them to best understand the process, helping them understand the process, um, a lot of our projects were through the uh, Motor City Match program that the city offers, um, where they offer funding towards your, uh, you know, your architectural, your engineering services, and it's like a match grant. And um, I would say, before transitioning into what I do now, that was probably 
one of the highlights of my career was just working with detroiters mm. help their dreams visualize right help them see what it looks like you can have these big clients all day but it's just like it was so fulfilling to empower people to say oh my god i didn't know it could i could do this i can afford this my business can look like that i've been here for 20 years and i never thought right so it's it's dreams realized at least on paper right what happens with Motor City Match and the grants and all of the funding things after, but that you give someone this tool, that this gift that they can use to move their dreams forward. That was probably the highlight of my architectural career. I think that's, that's really cool when you say you empowered people yeah. and you're teaching them how to work with an architect. Um, so they take that with them, not just for the one project that you work with them on, but they can carry that through to help grow their business. And, and help so, others, right? Yeah, because right. not everyone right. really understands the true importance of having an architect. Sure. Everyone always thinks, oh, you're going to design my project? Um, cool. Like, no, certain things you still need. You you have to go through formal processes <laughs> for. Like, you, it, it's not that easy. You can't just have somebody do something and sketch up and give you a couple views and that's just going to be sufficient. That's not right. how this works. Okay. So we doing this together. <laughs> yeah. So it's one, you know, those types of programs are good for those things, but that's another round table discussion for another no. day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, and how that translates now to the work that I do um, with the city. Now I have found it to be the most fulfilling Yes, there's bureaucracy. Yes, it's political. Yes, it's, yes, it's, there's a lot of things that come with doing development in a city like Detroit. And I would submit anywhere, honestly. And of course, there's a lot that goes into particularly developing affordable housing. But at the end of the day, the outcome is housing for residents. There are potentially jobs for residents, good paying construction jobs that if you have projects that have to um, adhere to certain federal requirements because we manage federal dollars, that they have you know things like Davis-Bacon wages that are applicable, where they have to hire within a certain radius of the project. If your project's in Detroit, you have to hire within a certain radius of the site of that project, and you have to pay, you have to meet certain uh, wage requirements. So there's job potential for Detroiters, there's living opportunities for Detroiters, that has been very fulfilling for me. I will say, um, I was talking to my best friend not too long ago. I think I had like a day where I had like seven meetings. I was like, well, how am I supposed to get anything done? I'll be talking to people for seven of the eight hours of this day. I was like, I ain't got it in me today to do overtime. I'm not doing it today. (laughs) Um, And she was just like, but Naomi, remember you used to always say you want to build affordable housing because there's always (laughs) this one building at the corner of my parents' block. I used to always say, I want that to be, I want to do a women and children shelter there. I've been saying this since I was probably like 16, 17. She and I have been best friends since, since middle school. Yeah. And so I remember you telling me that a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. And she was like, Naomi, but you realize it might not be directly what you're doing, right? You haven't got to that project yet, yeah. but it's what you're, right. you're doing, what you always wanted to do. And you're I was like, what you asked for. Lord Jesus, this is what <laughs> I asked for. for. Yeah. And so it's a different, it's a different type of gratitude. Yeah. Um, it's a it's it's a different joy that comes with the work that I do now. I'm so happy for you. 
Thank you. It's so exciting. It's, it's something new every day and it might not be in the capacity that I thought it, what it looked like. Right. Mm-hmm. I always thought that it would be an architecture that I would go on to get licensed and then I would draw my own things. But I would submit that architecture while being a very important piece, I, I think sometimes there's an opportunity just to get kind of stuck there. And I think having the full scope of how this whole thing comes together mm-hmm. is a much greater skill set and a much better use of my talents and it piques my interest more mm-hmm. um, than just working on the small part that is of these projects. Yes, architecture is big to it, right? Because we still need to know what it is, what we're funding, mm-hmm. what it looks like, what criteria, like what it meets, all of those things. So it's still big, but just having a full understanding of the whole picture is what I enjoy most about it. And then the outcome at the end of the day. I'm just looking from the outside in. I see this is just, I just think, I think this is all part of your journey. And I, and I don't think, and I don't think you're done with architecture. I don't think you're done with affordable housing. I don't think what you, you're done with that building on the corner. Thank you. I received that. <laughs> it's cur- it's currently vacant and boarded up, but it's still in good condition. Yeah. It's just it's waiting for Naomi. Maintained. Ooh, but I don't listen. But being on the other side of it, I don't know if I want to do the development part. <laughs> right, right. I'm not going to even hold you up. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> oh God. Yes. No. Yeah. I understand. Let's see. You're understanding the financial part. You know, mm-hmm. that it's just giving you another layer, another foundation, and like I say, other other blessings, other things will come other ways that that make the other possible with a risk part of it a little bit more comfortable because that's mm-hmm. what it is. It's straight up it risk. Is, it's all a risk. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so, no, this is exciting. I'm like, so happy for that's you. Great. Thank you. It was great talking to you because it's been a while. Likewise. Thank you, ladies, so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them. If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before you go, If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming contemporary and trailblazing architects. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or 
whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, yep. just taking it day by day. Yes. But not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives.